Hello folks, it's a new week and you chose to kick it off by tuning in to our latest episode of Having a Cuppa. I'm Chris Nell, welcome to the podcast. This stream to notify our newcomers is carried on numerous affiliates, so don't hesitate, tell your friends and invite them to find the show on namely Apple Podcasts and iTunes, Spotify, Audible, Amazon Music, Podcast One. This is to help the stream reach bigger audiences. And plus, we have a link you can find in this episode's show notes, which rings to the tune of rate this podcast forward slash having a cuppa to rate and review us. As I said, this will help us to reach a bigger audience, maybe to fine tune some things to the podcast to make it more revolutionary whatever might tickle your fancy. And we also sweeten the pot for you through our own page, now found on Patreon. From as little as five bucks a month, you can get behind the scenes, you can have a shout-out on our latest episodes, and maybe you can contribute valuable input on future podcasts. Head on down to patreon.com forward slash having a cuppa, select any one of our fine tiers, get in on the action, don't hesitate. My guest for the week is a rather dainty dame that goes by the name of Laurie Anderson. Laurie, in short, has struggled with addiction and loss, and in ensuing, has regained a new sense of freedom and empathy since achieving sobriety. Miss Anderson hosts Law's World, a rather popular vidcast that's been making the rounds on YouTube. Another platform I see, God willing, becoming a springboard to keep the dream alive. Some of our mutual buddies who've guested on this show have guested on Laura's, namely Sober Press's Mike Ferrer and our very own cup of vixen, Hillary. You can follow Laurie on Instagram at the handle at laws underscore world of sobriety, sample some fine motivational tidbits which are presented in a colorfully flavored variety, or you can even visit Laws World on YouTube. I should add, yours truly will premiere on the stream in the coming week or so. I'll have more info on that for you, so be sure to check your local listing. That is my Instagram handle at Chris Nell Media, my Facebook page, which is my first and last name, remember Nell spelt dual L, or cut through all the red tape, visit my website to peek at who I am, the URL, www.chrisnell.co.za. If you'd like to appear on the podcast, you can write me an email, info at chrisnell.co.za. I'll forward you thus my Calendly link. Select a date and time. A Zoom link will be tucked comfy and cozy in your email in turn. Or you can just simply become a member of my Instagram. Click a link on my bio. Select book a cuppa. Follow the simple steps. Same outcome applies. Let's head to the Constitution State now to have a cuppa. Laurie Anderson is here, ladies and gents. Stand by. This portion of the show is being brought to you by Whatever We Have in Stock Are Us, your one-stop place to shop for whatever we happen to have lying around at the time. And now for our feature presentation. Nothing like the finest selection.
Nothing like the open road. Let's see where it leads me. My name is Chris Nell. In a burgeoning career spanning half a decade, I've done a bit of everything. I've walked the boards on the stage. I've essayed emotions and intention down the barrel of a lens, and I've kept the public on its toes through the coil of a mic. Now, I've entered the world of podcasting. During my quest, there's many questions that need an answer. There are many voices yearned to be heard, and many stories aching to be told. I want to hear them all. I'm a vagabond with an insatiable curiosity. Now I'm hitting the road. Welcome to my journey. invited to hear the stories and the views of people spanning the globe. You'll be taken places through the odyssey of your imagination, from the palm trees of California to the Everglades of Florida, the prairie hills of Alberta and the cathedrals of Montreal and beyond. Come along as we discover the hidden truths to matters of the heart, matters that knowledgeable people share. Artists, activists, advocates, and survivors. They share because they care. People like you and me. Join me as we learn what makes them tick. Sit back and strap yourself in. We're having a cuppa.
for a change? We are, help me right here, Laurie. Are we in the Midwest? Is that where Connecticut is situated? No, I'm on the East Coast. I am East about Coast, an, hour you say. Half, yep, an hour and a half away from New York City. So I'm not that far from New York. Well, uh, all I do know about Connecticut is it is home to two of the greatest screen actors that ever lived, Chris Plummer and Chris Walken. Yes. <laughs> yes. And we just lost Chris Plummer, so God rest in peace. But Laurie Anderson, welcome to having a cup. It's a pleasure to have you. Very nice to be here. Thank you very much. Uh, it's only a pleasure. You know, in my journey of recovery, I find, and I've often openly endorsed this ever since I've gotten involved in a, some manner or another with the sober movement, that it is compulsory or at least necessary to tell your story to others because you might never know what kind of detail or influx might rub off on another person to say, you know what, I can identify with that because that happened to me. So tell me your story, your path about where you mm. collided. Just a quick question. Where? Just yes, a quick question. Ahead. Were you an alcoholic exclusively? Were you a drug addict or a bit of both? Um, you know, alcohol was what took me out. Um, but I did have a little uh, I did have a little battle with uh, cocaine for a couple of years. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I um, I it's funny. It's funny because the first time I drank alcohol, I was about 13 or 14 years old at a girlfriend's house and um, her parents were going out. So we were going to, you know, we were going to drink and her parents ended up coming home early. And there was uh, we had blackberry brandy hidden in a in an empty mayonnaise jar. So a we mayonnaise gonna, jar. A mayonnaise, <laughs> this, this is, yeah, this is how we hid it. So her parents went out and we're, you know, in our sleeping bags and we're going to, you know, we're going to drink. And her parents came home and I wanted to to hide it. Of course, I didn't. We didn't want to get caught with it. I drank the whole thing down, the whole thing. And I I don't even want to say I woke up the next morning. I guess I came to at 14 years old with vomit everywhere I totally blacked out from it. I smelled so bad. My girlfriend was crying and trying to clean up. <laughs> and so for me, <laughs> alcohol was evil, <laughs> evil. And I didn't touch it. I did not touch it uh, for the longest time. And, and that's what's so insane uh, about my story is that I, 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 I did not experiment with it after that for the longest time. Um, and even if I did, I, you know, it was like, you know, maybe a champagne toast or, you know, my, my in-laws made homemade wine. I didn't like the taste of it. So I'd water it down with some Sprite or something. So I really never liked it. So um, I had a lot of what we call the isms, though, when I look back, Um I was the oldest of five children in an Italian Catholic family. And my dad, my dad, you know, bless his heart. You know, when I look again, when I look back on it now, he did the best he could. 
You know, he just did not uh, know what to do with us kids. <laughs> so my mom, my mom was the one that raised us and he went to work. And, you know, if you did something wrong, you know, wait till your dad gets home. And, you know, he we never knew what kind of a mood he was going to be in. So, you know, he was a little scary. He was a little scary and he didn't talk to us much. Uh, he he yelled a lot. So mm. I. I actually, it's funny because I'm from, even when I was little, um, there was a lot of, like I said, a lot of kids in the house. I don't know if it was, you know, attention seeking um, or not feeling loved or whatever the case might have been. I used to escape into um, my own little world. That's why I have my, my Laura's world. Running inside <laughs> your own head. Inside my own head of how things should be. <laughs> <laughs> the bird should be chirping on your shoulder and everybody should just love each other and everybody should just get along. And so I loved fairy tales, Chris. I love them because they always started out, you know, you know, intense, but they always ended on a happy and a happy ending. And mm. that's what I mm. craved. I craved being this, you know, in this happy ending. Um, so I, like I said, I did not, I didn't drink a lot. Uh, at all when I was when I was uh, young, um, but I, I loved telling little stories to my friends um, to make myself look like I don't know what. Uh, I don't know if you know who Donny Osmond is. Oh yes, from the Osmonds. I used to play a lot of their music in my FM okay. radio days. So I I made up this story that Donny Osmond, you know, you know, landed his purple plane in my backyard. <laughs> <laughs> so that. So everybody would like me and want to come over and play with me because I did not know how to make friends. And so those were the kind of things that I would do, these wild stories. Um, I don't know. I, I, I don't know why. I don't know why. And to this day, you know, I don't question it anymore. It, it just was what it was. Mm. Um, my father was a very hard worker. He, we always had a roof over our head. Uh, my mom, bless her heart. I love her so much. We have a great relationship. Um, she, you know, she was always very encouraging, um, but behind my dad's back, you know, like mm. if, my, if I came home with straight A's, you know, he'd go with me, fucking do, do you want a medal? You know, and it was like, but my mom would be like, oh, you did so good. Here's, you know, here's, here, here's a, you know, a tennis racket. Cause I, you know, you're so special. So it was, sure. it was a weird dynamic. <laughs> I can understand that, but to shoehorn it in from the anthropology research that I've done about various cultures, it's just a little hobby that I pursue on the side, the Dutch, the Irish and the Italians. And I'm sure other nationalities like the yeah. Greeks and so on and so forth. One of their prime trademarks was they were always hard workers. Family came first mm -hmm. and you, everything that you got in this life, you worked for and you, you appreciated it. it. And that yes. also created a sense of identity in the sense of we're proud to be Italian because here in South Africa, where I live, we've got a smattering of everything. There's me, there's, there's, uh, there's myself, which is Dutch Irish. We've got Italian as well, which live in their own little cluster. You have Jewish, Hebrew, Jewish, that live in their own little cluster, and we all learn how to get along. Now, naturally, I've heard horror stories about street fights and so on and so forth, but that's not the dominating characteristic of the right. Italians. I've always had a very deep-seated love for 
the Italian heritage as a whole, because as I mentioned earlier on, hard work family, you eat what yes. you kill, you... Yes, yes, my dad was a hunter, yes. It, you it provide was, for your family, you know, that hard. was something that I really have always appreciated and looked up to. Yes, and, and I and I do too. I think that's where I get my work ethic from is is, is my is my dad, work very hard. The the flip side of that was always so if you know whatever you know you wanted you did it yourself. Oh yes. And it felt like if you asked and for you did help, it right the first time. The first time, <laughs> and if you asked for help, that was a sign of weakness. Oh sure, sure. You know, so it was like you know you've got to do this. You know, pull yourself up by by your bootstraps, and you know if you want something to cry about, I'll give you something to cry about. And and and, and the crazy thing was, he never laid a hand on any of us. He did not hit us. He did. It was the look. You got the look. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. You got the look like oh, you know what? You the know, demon but, eye. Yeah, the demonized. But you know what? I was brought up in the '60s. I was born in 1964, and that culture back then. Two and not just Italian. I think it was just a way of, of of the way it was. You did not air your dirty laundry in public. Never. So what happened in the house stayed in the house. You did not tell your you did not tell people about what was going on with you. None of this, you know, me too, the Me Too movement. Mm-hmm. Um, so whatever happened, you kept that a secret. It's nobody's business. And and like I said, I didn't have anything that was you know, earth shattering that I needed to share. I just, did, I, I don't know what it is. It's part of my personality. I love people. Um, and I like to talk to people and, but you don't, but you don't share your business. So it was, no. it was, it was bizarre. It was just bizarre. I can um, understand. So yes, I, so I made up a lot of stories. <laughs> <laughs> so I made up a lot of stories. Um, as did I, as you do as a yeah, child. Yeah, you know, and, and, you know, going to school, you know, I, like I said, I was the oldest. So I, I had this mentality of, you know, having to take care of my siblings. You know, I love them and I wanted to protect them. And if they, you know, if they did something that, that pissed me off, here was the other thing. I didn't go to them with what was bothering me. I went to the other sibling. Do you know what John did? Do you know what daddy said? You know, we never addressed issues to the person that we were having issues with. It was always, it was always the back door because I, I, I needed to be heard about something. And they were always like, oh, I know, you know, dad's mean. <laughs> so I, that's how I got my validation. You know, yeah, dad's mean. I can oh, understand. God. You know, the daddy issues, poor me, you know, daddy doesn't love me. Just, but just because he didn't say it, um, you know, and again, I feel I, I know this now. And as a, as a child, I didn't. I was always vying for his affection. I always wanted to try to make him proud of me. Um, he just did not have that way about him that, you know, hey, good job. It's what was expected. It was what was expected. So I was, you know, I had straight A's. Um, I was a people pleaser. I didn't said what anybody wanted me to say or do, even if I didn't feel like it was good for my own soul. Um, I went along because I wanted to, you know, I wanted people to like me. And from a very, very young age, um, I hated to be alone. I 
was petrified to be alone. I would wake my sisters up. We, the three of us shared a room together and I would wake them up to go to the bathroom with me because I was petrified to go down the hallway. Like it was like one of those, like, um, so when I got into, when I, when I, got into high school, my freshman year of high school, uh, where I grew up in Wolcott, Connecticut. I've been a, I've been a resident of Connecticut my whole 57 years. Um, I found that, uh, smoking pot <laughs> helped me fit in with some of the cool kids. I hated right. it. I did not like the way it made me feel. I, I, you know, to be that I was already depressed. So it made me even more depressed, <laughs> but to fit in, okay, I will, you know? And I, I remember my mom going, Oh my God, put your glasses on. You're squinting. And I would laugh because I was just so high. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and, and so I try to fit in that way and I didn't like it. One thing that did save me was that, you know, I know a lot of the kids were doing, you know, this was the seventies. A lot of kids were doing acid and speed and all of this other stuff. And it mm. petrified me. And I think that was, I was saved by the grace of God with that because I probably would have been a, a mess a lot earlier than I, than I was. So I did not, I did not um, get into that with everybody. And, um, but in turn, but, it was alcohol that was yes. the Achilles heel. Yes, yes, it was. And so after, you know, after that little thing at my girlfriend's house, you know, I swore I'd never drink again. Um, you know, like I said, the pot came in for a little bit, but I was always feeling less than or not loved or not wanted or whatever the, 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 the thing was. And I remember feeling that I did not want to be in this world anymore. I really felt like who cares? Nobody cares. Uh, again, poor me, poor me in my, in my, in my head of problems. And I remember going to this girlfriend's house and her grandmother had, you know, I don't know what, if they were Xanax or, or Valiums or whatever they were. And I took them from her cabinet. And I remember swallowing the whole bottle and just being, you know, I don't want to be here anymore. Um, waking up, I was a freshman in high school, waking up and going, oh my fucking God, I can't even do that right. Like I was so down on myself. Like I felt like I couldn't even commit suicide correctly. Um, my parents, So you did try and commit suicide? I did. By I swallowing did. pills? I did. By swallowing pills. Valium, they were. Yes. <laughs> At 14. Okay. You know? 14 13 Valium. I, I, well, I don't even know how many Valium were in the bottle, but I was 14 years of age. But it was a copious time. amount. I get you. Yeah. And so, I, I mean, I was out of it. I felt very out of it. Um, my parents took me to the emergency room um, and, you know, I was at that time in the seventies, there was, you know, there was, you know, not that much help out there for mental health issues. So I was put into this place uh, called, it was called Merriman Hall at the time. And it was a place for people to go uh, that were, I, I was in there at 14 years old with older adults that were suffering from alcoholism. <laughs> that was what they were in there for. And again, here I am looking around going, I don't belong here. Um, 
but a lot of it, a lot of it was the mental health issues and, you know, their, their problems were alcohol. And I'm like, I am not, I, I am not like, I don't know what is going on here. I just want to come home. I'll be good. I won't try this anymore. You know, just let me come home and, you know, I'll just sit in a corner and be quiet kind of a thing. And I did. And that's what I did for a year, for a year. So my my fa my father decided that we were going to move out of this this little town of of Bolkett and move into uh, this place in in Waterbury, Connecticut. It wasn't too far. It was maybe 15 minutes away, and brand new home. And I didn't have any friends in high school, but I gave them the whole "You're taking me away from my friends." <laughs> <laughs> But but I but I think that the whole thing was you know good or bad. That's all I knew, mm. and I didn't want to start somewhere new um, because this is this is where I grew up and this is what I knew. And I remember we were staying with my grandmother and grandfather at the time while we were doing the transition period. And I walked into this new school, and I was. I, I couldn't, I saw a, a girl, you know, knock out the vice principal and, you know, there was fights and you have to understand that I grew up in a, in a town of uh, Wolcott, Connecticut that did not have, um, there was no racism. There was none of that. We had one black family that lived in the town and I loved Pam, <laughs> you know, we were all friends. And so I didn't look at color. I moved into... Neither have I. I mean, I remember playing soccer in the street with some of my college mates. Yeah. And I was the it's, only it, pale face there was. Yes. In that year in the radio TV program. I, I didn't know any, you know, and I just adored her. I moved into the inner city and I saw the chaos um, of what was going on around me and it scared the shit out of me. And so I, you know, there was fights every day and people were, um, uh, you know, the blacks against the whites and it was, it was terrible. And I was so, I just felt like I was, I lived in this little bubble. Was and this I during the civil no rights conflicts? This was in the, this was in the seventies. It was just, I, I, I don't, it, it, busing had just started that they were, they were busing you know, not in the neighborhood. They were trying to integrate everyone. Okay, and there was just a lot of, there was just a lot of emotions turmoil. going, a lot of turmoil. And I was not sure what the heck was going on. And I, you know, I, I, I liked everybody and I just couldn't understand what was going on. And so I announced that I was not going to go to this school. <laughs> they were going to, I was staying home and they were going to have to homeschool me. And of course, you know, you know, that's not happening. You're going to go to school and this is what you're going to, what you're going to do. And so I tried to commit suicide again. Hmm. And I ended up in the ICU. And via the same method, like you did your first by swallowing yes, pills. Yes, it was, again. it was, med it was, med it was medication. I was diagnosed with uh, temporal lobe seizures or something um, because I kept saying I didn't feel right. I didn't feel like I was myself. I had stomach issues. I had this, I had that. And so they, you know, 
so I just, I ended up just taking this whole bottle and it was a lot in there. And, um, I, um, I was, I was, I was an ICU for this one. And, um, I remember my parents coming in, you know, with this look on their face and I was just, I was mortified again because it didn't work. And now I've got a face life that I've got a face life. And, um, Boy, oh boy, I tell you what, I, you know, I don't know what was going through my head. I, I really can't put a finger on it. Nothing traumatic happened to me. I was not molested. I was not, you know, I wasn't in, in an alcoholic family, an abusive family. There was nothing crazy going on in my household, except for my mind <laughs> was crazy. And and I got my first counseling. I started to get some counseling and um, I liked it. Um, I didn't share everything with the counselor because I wanted him to like me. <laughs> Play the so enigma game. Hopefully he takes you out on a date and then we can carry on yeah. the story further. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was, you know, I was nice 15 move. years old, you know, and he was kind of cute and I didn't want him to think that, you know, that I was, you know, this, this hot mess. So I really, you know, I, I started, I started lying and I knew what he wanted to hear and yeah. Okay. Hey. Yeah. He's 30 something years old. Like, yeah. Crazy. Crazy. <laughs> But I well, realized if you don't I throw out the bait, you don't know who might bite. I realized that, you know, boys, boys didn't ask you how you were feeling. They never asked you how you were feeling. Mm. They patted your ass. Oh, you're so pretty. Oh, you're this. Oh, you're that. And I love that. Any girlfriends that I had, girlfriends, I, you know, if they started to say something to me and I didn't want to hear it, I, they were not my friend mm. anymore, unless they could do something for me, fix me up with their brother. <laughs> I can understand. Uh, it's what you yeah. could get out of them. What I can get from them, um, a ride, you know, um, whatever it was. At this point, I was 15 years old. I'm in a brand new school and I meet some, you know, real, real Italian people. Stay Italian. It was crazy. It was like, it was called the town plot section of Waterbury. It was predominantly all Italian. The girls that I met at this new school that I was at, their parents didn't even speak English and they didn't have to. The restaurants, the church, our later Mount Carmel still does a still does an Italian sermon every week. Um, every <laughs> single the bakery, the, the 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 pharmacy, the doctors, everybody in the town plot area spoke Italian, so they didn't have to learn. And I, lo I loved my Italian heritage. I didn't speak Italian, but I, I loved my Italian heritage. So I started, you know, getting to be friends with some of these, these, these girls. And it was funny because I was taking Italian classes in, in the new school. And I was very excited about that. They would ask to cheat off my paper because they were, they were, they had, you know, like the dialect, their dialect and the real Italian were totally different. <laughs> so they was this Neapolitan or, or Sicily? 
Um, Pont, a lot of Pontalandolfos. Okay. <laughs> Pontalandolfo, Italy, was a, was a was a huge huge presence in in or, who I was hanging hanging with. Okay. Um, so I love these girls because they liked me because I could do something for them and um, they introduced me to my future husband. So at 15 years old, I started dating um, the father of my children and I wanted to get out of the house so badly. Uh, He was a lot, a lot like my father, very strict. You don't say this, you don't wear that. Uh, you know, you take care of your business. You do not get help for anything that is for, you know, weaklings. And this is what you have to do. And I was used to that. I was used to that mentality. So I got married at 20 years old and I was pregnant with my daughter at 21 and I had my son at 23. I was miserable (laughs) i felt like i jumped from the frying pan into the fire because it's one thing to live with you know live live with that when it's when when it's your when it's your father but when it's your significant other um this just did not feel right it didn't feel right to me and i feel bad because we're friends today (laughs) we're actually good friends today um but it was just (sighs) It was me. It was the way I felt. It was the way I perceived everything. I I would not say how I felt for months. I would bottle it up. And then I'd say, you said this. And he would turn around and say, I didn't say that. And I go, oh yeah? October 22nd, three o'clock in the <laughs> afternoon, you said. <laughs> I never oh voiced my opinion. I never voiced my opinion because I didn't think I was I was worthy of it. Um, because you know, to the Italians, there's a saying that they have, and it's you made your bed, you lie in it. Mm. So no matter what is going on, you deal. You stand and by your man. You stand by your man, and you deal. And unfortunately, I did not have the tools to deal. I didn't know what I I, I didn't like what I was dealing with. I didn't like anything in my life. Um, were you continually drinking at this point going forward? I was not even drinking at this point, Chris. This is, this, this, is the, this is the crazy part. I mean, I'd have a cocktail here or there, but it never, it was like, ay, ay, ay. I, I just, I, you know, my daughter was born in um, 1985 and I would, you know, leave my husband a hundred times, like I'd pack her up and go to stay with my grandmother. And I didn't even know what, if somebody asked me, well, what's happening? I don't know. I didn't know what it was. I just felt like I, uh, like a stranger in my own skin. I couldn't look at myself in the mirror and I didn't know why. Um, but I'm, you know, I, I can always blame everybody else. <laughs> Well, he does this, 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 and this, and she does this, 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 and this. And that's the reason why I am the way I am. Because I couldn't figure it out. I could not figure it out. So it's got to be everybody else, not me, right, Chris? (laughs) It's not me. Guilty. Um, Yeah. It was probably, uh, it was in the 1990s. 
uh, I had gotten introduced to cocaine. And I did this little bit of cocaine and I'm like, ah, what could, what could it hurt? And I did this little, little, little thing. And I'm like, I I didn't know anything. It's like, about an hour later, (laughs) I went into the restroom and I saw a little spot on my wall, on my, on my tile wall. And I cleaned my whole bathroom and I cleaned my bedroom and I cleaned out a closet. And I was like, whoa, maybe I'm onto something. It made me feel like. I wasn't depressed. The queen of the swing. I felt, I felt alive. Holy shit! I've got all of this energy. I want to do this and I want to do that and woohoo! And I didn't know how much it cost it, <laughs> but I wanted more, and I liked it. And I was like, "Wow, this is this is really awesome." It wasn't soon after I started doing cocaine that I realized that if I started to have a couple of drinks in between that I can make the feeling last longer. If I was too high, the drink would make me come down here. If I got too low, then the cocaine brought me back up here. And so I was playing that game. I believe um, it's called a highball. The continuous loop of snorting coke then perhaps having a shot, doing another yep. line or yep. rail, whatever slang you want yep. to use a little bit later, yep. and have another shot, and you would be cruising. Cruising. Cruising was not the word for it. Crazy but like a daisy. With this, yeah. But with this little cocktail mixture that I was having, I also realized that I could speak my mind and not care. And I asked my husband. Ask Jordan Belfort. <laughs> I asked my husband for a divorce. I'm out of here. <laughs> See you later. Bye. I, you know, you, you're the reason why I drink and do coke. And you know, as, as soon as you, you know, I would get if I got rid of him, then all my problems would be solved. And unfortunately, that is not the case <laughs> because I took me with me. <laughs> he was gone. And I had to sit there and think about what I wanted out of my life. And he was, you know, my all-time excuse. And the excuse was gone. The excuse was gone. So (laughs) I, at 33 years old, walked into a bar by myself. I was never into bars because I, you know, he was like, you're not walking, you're not going into bars. I never did like what the 19 and 20 year olds did, um, you know, partying and all of that. I was home with two kids and, you know, my sisters would send me from the Bahamas, wish you were here. And I cried, me too. <laughs> I feel like I missed out on something and I didn't. Um, and that's, you know, but what we learn after, like what we learn after is just amazing. Um, but yeah, I, uh, my, my cocaine, uh, my cocaine and uh, alcohol use spiraled quickly out of control from the age of 33 to 35. I was like an animal out of a cage. I was going to bars. I was dating anybody that would ask me out. I was just a good time. Charlie, I was like, I have arrived. I am like, I, I 
I was insane. I, I went insane. I was partying to all hours of the day and night after hours bars. Um, just, it was insanity. And when I would come to, I would say to myself, oh, Jesus, I think I'm putting myself into some serious, tr you know, trouble here. Um, so I feel bad. And then, you know, I would drink away those bad feelings mm. again. To know. And I was dating this, this guy, you know, dating, dating this guy. <laughs> yeah, we'll say it in quotations because I was not <laughs> You catch the drift. Naturally. And he, he asked me to meet him, you know, he was at work or something. And I was like, all right, all I wanted to do was get laid and have lines. And like, I just, <laughs> and he, he kept saying to me, you know, um, why do you do this to yourself? And I go, what are you like, what are you talking about? Like, and he puts on the computer, like you are so beautiful. You're worthy. I don't know why you do this to yourself. And blah, blah. I go, are we doing this? Yes or no? Like, I just, I don't know where you're coming from, but all I came down here was for a good time. And if you don't want it, I'll well, fine. And I walked out of there in a huff and I remember being pissed off and I'm getting my, my seatbelt on and, you know, and I caught a glimpse of myself in, 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 in the mirror. And I actually started crying. Like, what the fuck am I doing to myself? Like, this is so crazy. I, I am hurting myself so badly. And for what reason? I don't know. I was just, I always believed in, you know, I believed in God, but I, I, uh, by this point, I just felt like the things that I was doing to myself, to other people, I wasn't paying attention to my kids at this point. Um, I was dropping them off to my mother, to their father, wherever, whatever, so that I could go have a good time. This was, you know, me time. And, um, you know, I figured I wasn't hurting anybody else but myself. And, you know, I, I wasn't part of their life. I wasn't being a part of their life. It was, it was, it was horrible what I was doing. Um, and so I meet this other guy from, you know, a girlfriend of mine and, you know, we, I fell hard for him very quickly, vice versa. And within a year, we're, 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 we're going to get married. And I, you know, thought, I, you know, I'm in, so in love, you know. And he says to me, you do whatever you want because it's, you, you know, it's, it's you. And I can't tell you what to do, which was a, a, welc a welcomed <laughs> thing because I, was, I always felt like I was told what to do. Um, but I was in a relationship with somebody that had a cocaine problem and I, I can't deal with that. So if that's what you want to do, you go ahead and do it. But I cannot be, I cannot be a part of that. Um, and I cannot be a part of your life if that's what you're going to do. And I'm like, Oh no, Oh, I don't have a problem. I can give it up. I, you know, no, 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 no. You know, it's, it's cost me so much money anyways. You know, <laughs> I'll just, you know, I'll do, I'll do this for you, you know? And I stopped. I stopped doing it. Um, cold turkey. Cold turkey. So when people say, you know, like, when it came time for me, you know, to, you know, stop the, the drinking and I couldn't do it cold turkey. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, I, I put down the cocaine. Um, 
but here, but here was the switch. I put down the cocaine, but my drinking quadrupled uh, because his whole family drank. Is and, and I'm not blaming his family, and they, none of them have a problem. I was the one that had. A, I couldn't stop. They could all stop, mm. you know. And I, I, I just would continue. And um, that relationship, you know, I held it very near and dear to my heart. We had our issues like any other couple, but I started picking apart things that he did. If you would do this and you would do that. I wouldn't have to drink so much, you know, make a decision, do this, do that. Again, I'm pushing this off on another person for what my shortcomings are, um, you know, and it was, you know, it, it, it I, I don't know. It, it was funny because he would say to me too, like, you know, I would have to go, you know, my parents, you know, very, like I said, a very Italian family. Like, so every Sunday we would all get together and I started to get very anxious when I had to go to my parents' house because you never knew what my father's mood was going to be in. And, um, you know, he'd say to me, you know, you don't have to go. And I'm like, yes, I do. It's my parents. He's like, well, why do you put yourself through that? And I'm like, because it's my parents. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so I started to see a, see, see someone, um, a, a, a counselor, um, to you know, work through these things. And the counselor said the same thing. You don't have to go if it's causing you that much anxiety. What he wanted me to do, though, was talk to my dad. And I wasn't willing to do that. But I was willing not to go over there. <laughs> that made me feel better. <laughs> I, won't, I just won't go. <laughs> but I was missing my mom so much. And I was missing my sisters so much. And, um, you know, I, I, it, it was just, it was crazy. It was just crazy. But I got, um, I got, re I, I married this gentleman and, um, my dad was at the wedding and, you know, and I had a little bit of a hard time, like looking him in the face because, you know, I didn't ask him to do the, you know, the, the father daughter dance and all of this other stuff because I was so defiant, but he didn't even know that I was mad at him. <laughs> He had no idea, this poor guy, had no clue that I had cut him out of my life because he was toxic <laughs> by, I don't, you know, and, and, and um, I got a call from my mom and um, she said uh, he had been hurt uh, on the job and he uh, was fighting with whatever uh, workers comp, whether it was a workers comp case or whatever, my parents were losing their house and, uh, they were moving into an apartment and they were moving and my mom called me and she's like honey dad's in the emergency room we don't know what's going on but he wasn't feeling very well and i'm like oh all right you know but i you know he's my dad and i you know they're gonna keep him overnight i said okay they don't know if he had a heart attack or not i said okay and um, I lost my grandmother, his mom, to a heart attack. So, you know, of course I was concerned, but he was, you know, he was only 59 years old. So he smoked, smoked too much and he didn't eat right. And, you know, so I got my jacket on Chris to go to the hospital and I took my jacket off and I put my jacket on and I took my jacket off because I don't know what I want to say to him. I don't know if I want to see him. I... I'm mad at him. He has no idea why, but I, he has no idea, period. And I'm, 
I, I don't know what to do with this whole thing. And so I decided I was going to go to the hospital to see him. And I did. And I walked in, you know, rolling my eyes. And I'm like, I go, hey. He goes, hey. And he continued to watch TV. And um, I was very uncomfortable. And I just said, you know, what are you eating? What are they doing? And, you know, why did they think you had a heart attack? He said, well, my sugar was really high, but I don't have problem with my sugar. I don't know what's going on, but they're going to do a, a test tomorrow. I go, all right. Well, I said, well, I'm going to go. And I leaned over to kiss him. And I said, I love you. And he said, you love me? That's funny because I thought you were mad at me. And I said, well, I am. I can love you, but I don't have to like you. <laughs> I don't have to like you. And he said, well, why not? And for three hours, we yelled at each other. We cried with each other. We told each other everything I did. I don't know if it was everything he wanted to say. It was the first conversation that I had had with him um, that was the most honest, the most real, and the most raw that I had ever had with him in my whole life. And Easter was coming up, and I remember walking out of there feeling so like, free because I had finally said, I walk around eggshells around you. He goes, I do the same to you. Like we just had this conversation um, that was just amazing. And I was so thrilled. And, you know, and he's like, honey, tell mom that I need the glasses that are in my top drawer or whatever. And I'll see you. I'll, I'll talk to you tomorrow. He was going for this test. Um, Take your time. The next day, the next day he passed away. <laughs> he had a major heart attack at Waterbury Hospital in front of a cardiologist waiting to get his test done. Whew. At 59 years old. And that was the first time my knees ever buckled. <laughs> but that it should happen after the very conversation that you yearned for yeah. so long. Yeah. It was almost like it was destiny to happen. Absol absolutely. I I cannot, and this is 20 years ago. It's going to be 20 years in uh, March of 2021. 20 years. And was that um, and the cruxes that brought you to your knees and said, you can't do it anymore? You've just lost the You know, I, 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 I didn't gave at you that life. point. And I, I was I was sure I was sure that that was a message to me that I was truly loved. Um, he just did not know how to uh, show his feelings and amplify and, uh, it. You know, and, and we cleared the air. We cleared the air, and I was like, "Oh my god! Oh my god! This is great! I can't wait to see him for Easter. I'm not going to be afraid to go over there anymore because we promised each other that we would say if we if I was mad at him, I would say it, and vice versa." Um, and I, we didn't get that chance. Um, so I. I drank like a mad woman because this was not fair. <laughs> this was not fair. 
he's gone now and how am I supposed to, you know, this was, this was, you know, this was supposed to be our second chance. And, um, I, I, I did not, unfortunately, um, it got worse after that, unfortunately. Um, it was, that was in 2002. And for the next five years, it really, really got out of control. And I knew, I knew it was, it was happening, but no one was saying anything to me. I just started to isolate more um, because I would wake up on somebody's couch, like petrified, mortified. What did I do? What did I say? So I just started staying home. I wasn't having the kids come over at all. Uh, my, my, husband wasn't saying anything to me at all because I don't know if he didn't want to hurt my feelings or whatever I don't know we just didn't have those kind of conversations and I remember saying to him and it was probably in like 2007 2008 you know I think I have a problem and he said yes you know what your problem is you just don't have any willpower <laughs> and I'm like you're right I don't I don't know what's happening to me um and my brother, my little brother, oh God, I love my brother. Uh, we're 12 years apart. And um, I've always had this special thing in my heart for him. I don't know, big sister, little brother. I don't know what it is, but uh, I do now. Um, he's also in recovery. So we had that same, we had that connection. Stuff. And um, great stuff. He decided to get sober. And I'm like, oh, good. You need it. <laughs> <laughs> he needs it, but you don't. No, 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 I didn't. Of course I didn't. And so I, I, I kind of was like, I was super excited for him because I wanted to see, I wanted him to be like the little test dummy. Like, let's see how this goes. <laughs> With this cult. Yeah. Let's see how this goes. And, you know, he, he went and he, you know, to go get sober and, uh, he came out and I was like, well, how was it? And he's like, Oh, I don't know. And he, he didn't last very long. And, he lived out in California and uh, in Los Angeles, and he's um, he's you know works with some you know very high profile people, and sure. so he was like you know it, it was starting to become you know he was becoming becoming um, being told almost that you know you really need to do something or we can't have you you know with our agency anymore. And so he was in and out, and um, I keep tabs on him, of course, and. Um, he decided um, to go again to this very high-end rehab center, and uh, he walked out of it three days later. And he told me that, that he 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 heard all of this stuff before, but he was going to give AA a try. And I and I couldn't right. understand this. Right. AA, like seriously, dude, like AA, like I don't, I don't get it tens of thousands of dollars for, for, for rehab. And you're going to try AA. Like I didn't understand it at all, but bless your heart. Good luck. Love you. <laughs> um, and let me know how you do. And, um, another friend of his, um, I started to meet and they were all in recovery. And I really liked these guys. They were awesome. They were really awesome. And they were always happy. So. And you must have thought to yourself, I want what they have. What is it? I, I did. I did. I was missing something. So what was it? So let exactly. me kind of. Exactly. 
speak at this, you know? And I'm like, I still don't understand it, but and I'm not going to meetings because I don't, you know, I'm not going to go to a meeting, but I'm watching, I'm watching them. And his friend had asked me to come out to Las Vegas. He was totally sober and he was doing a uh, hair for, you know, somebody famous in a show. And we were going to be able to go meet this person and, and, you know, hang out and do the after hours thing. And so I, I had started in Sin City and I had like a couple of weeks earlier decided I was going to get sober on my own my own terms because I know best mm. my yeah. way or the highway um so I stopped smoking I stopped drinking I was working out and I'm going to do this on my own now physically I felt better but obviously and you we all know this you know emotionally you're still a fucking wreck. <laughs> Fuckulated. <sighs> but I went. I went to Las Vegas. And I am not going to, you know, I am not going to drink in front of my brother's friend who's sober. And I'm not going to disrespect him. So I didn't. I had a blast with him. He was so much fun. We went to this show. We went to an after hour, uh, after party show. I met some celebrities who was smoking pot, who was doing coke, who was drinking, having a grand old time, and I didn't. And I said to myself, see, I'm not an alcoholic. All I gotta do is put my mind to it. It was all there for me. I was offered it and I refused it. And so see, I'm a good girl. I just was too caught up in it. And if I just calm it down, I think that I've got this. Well, you know that saying, just when you think you've got it, you ain't got shit. <laughs> You're dead in the water. Because when I got home, I made a pic a picture, a picture of martinis. I was six weeks sober. And I said, I'm going to do this. And Chris, I poured myself into my glass and I'm looking at the martini glass and I was like, well, hello, lover. I missed you because at this point, this was the most meaningful relationship that I had had was with, with alcohol. Every other relationship that I had in my life was bullshit. I was lying. I was conniving. I was, you name it. That's what I was doing. I was just, I was a phony. I was a fraud. I looked good on the outside, but in the inside, I was nothing. Alcohol was the only, the only thing that got me. You know, that and my little. Did it come to a grinding halt? It came to a grinding halt um, after blacking out from that, that, that drink um, a year and a half later um my son my beautiful boy uh he was 23 years old january 8th 2010 mom uh, Take i'm addicted to heroin and i can't get off what the fuck i i, I don't think no no, 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 not heroin. I, Chris, I tell you, I live in this bubble. I, I had no idea, no idea um, 
about your any son had become a heroin addict. A heroin addict. And he worked with me, Chris, and I didn't see it. I knew that he was smoking pot. He didn't like to drink. I knew he smoked pot and I knew he was really depressed. And I'd say to him, Nick, stop smoking pot. It's making you depressed, you know? And he was like, mom, I, 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 I it's not pot. And um, he said, uh, I need help. And, um, but I haven't stolen anything yet. It was his next words. And I didn't know what that meant. <laughs> Because what I thought heroin looked like was not my son in his polo shirt. This beautiful boy who never talked back to me. He has a still is so respectful. Um, so I, I was going to get him help, Chris. I was going to get him help. And what that did for me was I'm going to do this with him for him because i'm such a great mom i'm the greatest mother i haven't done anything for this child but push him to the side for the past eight years and this is my fault and i did it and i'm going to fix it because i'm a fixer so and i sent this you're child a mother and you're looking after your cub like uh, any mother would yeah well, I sent this child back to the place where he was doing heroin so I could go home and get my big Southern Comfort and Diet Coke and get online and find him help, which I did at two o'clock in the morning. Finally, somebody said, how can I help you? Well, yes, yes, you could help me. You're going to help my son. I'm going to send him to you. You're going to fix him and you're going to send him back. And at that time, I was working a job that I was making six figures at. So money was no object. You're going to fix him and send him back to me. And a week later, on a Saturday night, he went in on a Tuesday. On a Saturday, I was called at midnight to come get him because he tested positive for something. Uh, he snuck something into the into the place. And um, I was drunk, Chris. I was so drunk that I couldn't go pick him up. Oh, I was so intoxicated and so I but I'm not not go so I woke up my my husband at the time and I told him he had to take us and take me and I'm gonna go get him and I, the, the, the counselors there probably took a look at me and said now we know what the problem is because I was belligerent and I'm screaming at you know everybody <laughs> and did they say that to you no, no, but you know, but you but know, you how, summarize you know the situation. How, I get yeah, it. yeah. You're like, I, I had to have reaped. I was being totally, you know, a maniac, blaming the person that went up to visit Nicholas and everybody else but Nicholas and, and, and me. And, and, um, but the, the, the truth of the matter was that I was petrified. I was very fearful for the first time in my life. I didn't have an answer. I didn't have an answer. And, I needed help <laughs> and I didn't know how to ask for it. So I, um, this was in January of 2010. Um, and I, with the help of his father, uh, we checked into some other alternatives and living arrangements for him and to get him some help. And, uh, you know, I was at a meeting to a meeting for him <laughs> 
taking notes because I'm a great mom and I do great notes. And this is what, you know, I'm going to put it, you know, pen to paper and this is how we're going to fix it. And, you know, all right. So do not enable him, <laughs> you know, and, um, I'm listening and it was February 14th. It was Valentine's day. And, um, I'm listening and I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened. I don't know. I had this moment of clarity. I don't know. I had this aha moment. Somebody tapped me on the shoulder. Perhaps it was God speaking to you. I, I, it has to be Chris, because I just put down my pen and paper and I actually was listening and I said, Oh my God, this is me. I need help. And if I don't get the help that I need, I I can't help him. I cannot help him. And so I went home Valentine's night, February 14, 2010. And I drank myself silly for the next two days uh, because it was my last hurrah. I called my son up and I said to him, I'm going to get sober. Um, I apologize for for giving you the gene of addiction. I I apologize for giving you the gene of being gay. And I and I, and I apologize even for lactose intolerance. I was like I was just apologizing to all him for everything. All over. Because I did exactly the like, same when I came to surrender. I was like I I, I just I nearly crashed the car. <laughs> like oh my and my and my husband's yelling at me don't say these things to him and i'm like i have to you know and um i it, it was just so bizarre it was so bizarre so i called my brother and so my brother had had a couple of years of sobriety and i just said what do i do and he said go into an aa meeting and i'm like oh how he says to be the link they're everywhere and i lived in this little small town and i'm like but they're gonna know that i'm a drunk and he goes they already know because <laughs> you you put on quite a show everywhere you go <laughs> <laughs> so i did on february 16 2010 i walked into my first aa meeting and i raised my hand and i said hi i'm Lori, and i'm an alcoholic chris and i have never back um i wish i could say it was so yeah i wish i could say that it was so easy you know because it wasn't i'm still fighting it the first couple of years because i didn't want to take the suggestions but like we said in the beginning something there was something that i knew that i was that i that i was searching for um you know, I remember calling up family members who had left the Catholic religion to do like, you know, other religion, like maybe what's your religion like, you know, and mm. I'm like, no, that's not it. <laughs> you know, what's your religion like? From no, Baha'i to maybe St. Mat, Buddhism, Sikh. Something, something, there's something else. And <laughs> what I found, what I was missing was me, <laughs> me. I, I, I hated to be alone because I didn't want to be alone with myself. I didn't like me. Um, I found that um, I am a good person. I genuinely love people. I, and, 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 you know, you know, like you, people will still say, you know, you're still a people pleaser. I, I'm nah, not. I'm just rubbish. I, I'm not. I, 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 I just feel Lori. good about myself. 
Um, I feel good of, you know, uh, helping out other people that are in recovery. I also kept it a secret for a very long time. I wouldn't tell anybody, oh, I'm not drinking. I'm on medication. You know, I, you know, the whole thing. I don't want anybody to know, you know, you know it's nobody's business, you know. And I started speaking out more, uh, more and more. And I, you know, anytime anybody asked me to, to tell my story, I would, even though I was shaking in my boots. Uh, my son's uh, my son's sobriety was separate from mine, and that was something else I had to learn because you know I <laughs> I was doing so well. So I told him what meetings he had to go to, and I picked out his sponsor. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I had to learn that you know everybody everybody has their own journey to go on, and, and you have to meet them where they're at. You have to meet them where they're at, you know, and I, you know, when he relapsed, you know, again, and I I was going to all these meetings, like looking for an answer and, and an old timer just said to me simply, just continue to set a good example and pray for him. I go, no, no, I've got to do something else. He might die. And but in your defense, if dead I in the add- eyes that he might. And that is his journey, not yours. But then again, if I can add my 50 pence just quickly, that is always, and I've said this to some other women who have had similar stories much to yours, with a little bit of a different context. When you know as a mother that there's life brewing inside of you, that's when you know the motherhood, like a gear to a car on your shifter, it kicks in almost immediately. The moment that you give life to your child, it's an unrequited love that only ends when you yourself lay your head to rest. So you were only trying to be a mother. Just hold the line for me one sec. Yeah, absolutely. But the moment that you gave life to that child, your love for your child only ends the moment that you lay your head to rest. So all that you were trying to do is you were acting on maternal instincts. So you can't blame yourself for that. But it's equally mature to say, I know my recovery is not my son's recovery. I have to give him space. Yes. And the only thing yeah. I can do is pray for protection over him that through God's timing, he'll come to a place of surrender and he will get in touch with people of similar thinking that he yes. can start to heal. Did something like Absolutely. that ever happen? Yes, yes. And and, and I, uh, he moved out to uh, California the last time. Um, my brother, uh, offered for him to come out there and there was a uh there was a recovery house that were you know was you know gay and lesbian recovery because he said you know mom you know about addiction but you don't know what it's like to be gay and i and i said i'm you're right i don't and he had a hard time with being a gay addict 
Uh, he could not look at himself in the mirror. He couldn't. He couldn't handle being gay, um, and so but I can there understand was a, the psychology in that regard. Yeah. If I use yeah, this, if they use this expression, I don't mean it demeaningly. I mean it. No. Um, I mean it upliftingly. Let him hang out with his camp, with his yes. people. Let there be yes. a commonality, a common language. Absolutely, absolutely. And Chris, everything for the longest, else is redundant I, in that regard. Yeah. When I would go out there, uh, you know, there's a, a very strong gay community. Um, it's and the capital. I didn't take a, yeah, I didn't take him out there for the longest time because I knew he'd leave. I didn't want him to leave me. <laughs> and I remember <laughs> the time that I that I did take him out there, and he was standing outside of a of a restaurant looking, and I go, "Honey, what's man?" He goes, "My peeps." my peeps sir my peeps are here like he couldn't understand living in a small town of you know in connecticut um that he felt you know less than and so when my brother offered him you know to come out there to meet other gay sober men that were doing this you know this sober thing i i i absolutely this was great but he got kicked out of the house in two days because he How didn't did that happen he, he didn't want to fight for his bed. There's so many people that need it, Chris. Um, okay. But the, but, the, but the girl there, the woman that was running the house, he didn't want it bad enough. And so he was just like, okay, okay. Everything was okay, okay, okay. And I said, and he's yelling at me. He's screaming at me. And I said, did you scream at her like you're screaming at me and fight for your bed? He goes, well, no. And I go, that's what she was looking for. There are so many of us that, that need the help. Ah, I get it now. How, what were you willing to do to get it? And so he, uh, I got a phone call at two o'clock in the morning, um, a couple of days later from a friend of my brother's, we can't find Nick. And so here I was the one that I can't get, jump in the car and, and go find him. Um, and so I tried this thing that they told me about praying, but truly praying. And I laid back in my bed and I prayed that he would be okay. And the second thing that came out of my mouth was, and if he's not, that I hoped that it was quick and that he was at peace. And I meant it. I meant it. And I felt wow, this peace come over me. Say. Yeah. I felt this peace come over me like I've never felt before that it is his journey, not mine. And there is nothing I could do for him. He needs to do it for himself. And I can only be supportive, loving, and, you know, and, and not and stop enabling him. Um, because he wanted to come home. And uh, that was the first time I refused for him to come home. And he needed to do what he needed to do. And uh, I am very proud to say, you know, because this doesn't happen for everybody. I'm very grateful. I'm very thankful. Um, he's sober today. Uh, he's 34 years old. He's come home to Connecticut. Uh, he's been here for a couple of years and he's very much into his uh, martial arts. It gives him that piece I of- I saw a photo on your social media. Yes. You know, and he looks like- he's like young 16. man. He, he looks like he's like 16. He's very young looking. He he's 34. <laughs> but he takes know, after he his like mother. <laughs> he looks like a baby. Um, he takes after his I'm mother. So, yeah. Oh, thanks. Um, but he's, 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 he's doing wonderful. He's doing wonderful. And, you know, and it is again, his own, his own, his own journey. And I have a wonderful daughter, 
she's 36 years old and she, thank God has never been, you know, had addiction problems. And that's another thing because it's been me and him, you know, and this poor thing has been watching from the sidelines, you know, and. And she stood by the both of you. And she stood by the both of us. And, you know, she came to me, she's the one that came to me last year and she said, you know, she knew that I couldn't get to my meetings because of the pandemic. And she's like, you know, why don't, why don't we start a YouTube channel? And, you know, and I'm like, Oh God, no. And she's like, why not? You know, you've got a great story. You could, you know, talk to people. And I'm like, I don't know. And so she kind of like, you know, she gave me that little nudge and we tried it. And I got to tell you, uh, doing the thing with Lore's world in the last year has ignited something in me, in my sobriety that I wouldn't normally have encountered. I've met some amazing people all over the world. (laughs) And I heard these stories of experience, strength, and hope. And, you know, not everybody does it Lori's way. And they're still great. (laughs) Nobody ever does it Chris's way. Yeah. Nobody has the same pattern as Chris's story, but there are certain elements that bleed over. Yes. You know, and I was listening to uh, listening to one of your one of your one of your podcasts, Chris, and it was like, you know, you know, our own little recipes of what works and, you know, what worked for me 11 years ago doesn't necessarily work for me today. Um, I am a very proud member of AA still because I like the principles. I, I, I was my foundation. It has saved my life. I have great friends in AA, um, but I don't base it solely on AA anymore. Um, I do, you know, I have friends that are in Al-Anon. Uh, I have, I still do, you know, a counseling, uh, with a friend of mine. Um, and it's not in the traditional sense of me going to his office anymore, but I still get to bounce stuff off of him. Um, mm. I'm a very spiritual person. Um, so I love to see, you know, the meditation and yoga, like I'm going into all different areas that I've never gone before. Um, just keeping my mind open always. Mm, mm. And I think it's um, where, where I didn't do that before. Extremely imperative. If you don't do a twelve-step program, <laughs> you're not gonna make it. Like I, like I, my mind was still like, but because this is what worked for me, and I thought, you know, I want to share these little pearls of wisdom with everybody. <laughs> But it's not necessarily the case. And here I am, my nose is running because of like a hot mess. But uh, excuse me. No, not a but, problem. Um, but emphasis on heart. Yeah. You know, I... I, I was complimenting I love, you there. I love... I just love to hear what people do. I like... I read stories and I listen to people sharing. And I don't know. I just... Um, there's always something that I learn from somebody else. Oh, always. Absolutely. Why do you think I started Even if it's this somebody whole thing that I place? that I go to a meeting every uh, you know every week and I'm like, "Oh god, I got to listen to this person again." <laughs> Say the same thing over and over. You know, and that's me being, you know, what my, one of my friends is not being judgmental. You just have a built-in noticer. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm like, oh, right, being nice about it. But, you know, sometimes if I just say, you know what, this is what keeps this person sober. This is what works for them. And who am I to say that they, you know, what they're doing or how they're saying it. And as soon as I say that, Chris, nine times out of 10, somebody says something that I get blown away by. 
And I'm like, see, I wouldn't have been listening. I wouldn't have been present and listening. I would have just been like, oh no, not him again, you know, and um, just letting people be themselves and not, you know, absolutely and not judging, absolutely. you know, and that's. And I yeah. think as well in recovery, especially if you get to midterm recovery, which I believe is after two years, you you start to unlock within yourself an empathy that you didn't know you had before. Yes. Even people who might not be completely sober, they're sober curious, dare I say. And yeah. You should hear their story. I like that and <laughs> you uh, recognize those bits and bobs about yourself in their story as well. You don't want to judge them. You just want to give them a big, big hug and say, it's okay, it's yeah. okay. Just yeah. take that step into the other side. And I, you were in attendance when I spoke about this. All of us have certain gifts within us that have been gifted by God. Humor, wit, pathos, mind's the gift of the gab, certainly. Um, compassion, empathy, blah, 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 blah. Just mm -hmm. a quick question on top of that. How long have you been sober now? Just shortly. 11 years. 11 years. 11 years in February. Yeah, I celebrated. 11 if... and a half. <laughs> I got to get that in. <laughs> well, you go, girl. You go. I know, I know. What are some of the gifts that you have uncovered about yourself now that you have been committed to staying sober and actively reaching out to others? That I'm truly... a loving person um that it's not fake like i thought i was pushing myself and to i wanted be. to say i wanted to say this in this conversation whenever you smile or break out into laughter your eyes smile with you <laughs> well thank you like there thank right there <laughs> you right break there. out into a yeah. to a smile and, and I, laughter you know, your I, eyes I, just I light up with glitter pushing myself you know pushing myself to say these things and and and, and i really truly mean it you know i i truly truly mean it i i anybody that you know in recovery i i love everybody that i've met in recovery i don't necessarily like some of their personality they're just different personalities we're we're, we're humans and we you know some people just you know come uh you, something hey, that i all the same they'd be you know, world war three yeah you know i mean my goodness you know that's what makes the world go round. but i do have this love that i because I know what it's like in somebody's heart to be so hopeless. Um, and the addiction um, thing is just, I don't wish that on my worst enemy, Chris. I, I just I. don't. I just don't wish it on my worst enemy. And, you know, and I just and take, have. Can I take it a step further? I don't even want yeah. to wish my wrongdoers ill will. You know, no. the tired old saying that whatever you sow, you reap? Yes. What? Yeah. There's a little hidden detail that doesn't get associated with that saying is it comes back to you 10 times worse. Ten times, yeah. And the, you know, when what you goes see around that, comes around, you know, and it's like, oh, And when you see it, when you see it happen to the oppressor, yeah. you are mortified. Yeah. So I don't, I don't even wish my like, wrongdoers ill will. I speak them free I and don't. I let them go. Yeah. But I don't want to see them again. I, exactly. And that, and that's, that's the thing. It's not like, you know, all oh, this forgive you know, like the forgiveness part or the resentments or whatever I had, that, because I did have wrongdoings done to me. Um, but I can also, you know, take a step back and say, you know what, I, I don't, I've done some things 
I have done some things to people that I have, you know, tried to make amends to. Um, and, you know, with my, in my, you know, my dad's case, he's gone, but I mean, I have conversations with him still. <laughs> I've written him letters. Um, um, it's not that I, you know, want you in my life, but, but it's, but it's okay. Like, you know, I, I think I was sharing this yesterday in, in the meeting that we were in, you know, um, when somebody told me that I had to pray for the person that I thought wronged me. And I was like, ah, I pray for them. <laughs> uh-uh. I want them to get hit by a train. Like I, you know, I was just so hurt by, by this, you know? Yeah. And when I did start to do that, pray for that person, because you can't get something from somebody if they do not have it to give. Naturally. And well said. it's like, oh my God, how am I supposed to get that apology? Or how am I supposed to get that? They don't have it to give. Um, and so, you know, it, it went down from, you know, I, I took, you know, from a speeding train to, you know, getting hit by a Mack truck and then maybe like a pickup truck. Then maybe a pickup truck, but with an ambulance standing by, you know. <laughs> or a forklift. <laughs> Something. But it did, it did lessen it. It did lessen it. And it's right. like, you know what? We all have our things. We all have our fears. Uh, we all handle each other differently. And when somebody says something to me, you know, somebody said something to me that hurt my feelings um, just yesterday. And I was like, instead of snapping back, I was just like, okay, I'm sorry you feel that way. You know, I love you. And um, it has nothing to do with me. Correct. And that was the whole thing is like, you know, taking things so personally. Um, everybody and one has their gift thing. I should have mentioned as well, you and I were in the same meeting when you spoke. An overactive guilty conscience, I think, is another <laughs> gift of long-term sobriety. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> I couldn't you know? stop making oh. amends to a person who I'd indirectly hurt. It robbed me of my yeah. sleep and I wanted to make right by hook or by crook. And when yeah. I did... I can't say it made me feel better right away, but I'm proud of myself that I did it because now I've let go of that. I've taken responsibility. I've yes. owned my baggage. But what happens afterwards, I'll have just, just have to wait and see. But I'm hoping for the best. Yeah. And it's all good stuff. And I swear to goodness, I I swore, Chris, that I would never get married again. Damn it. I was married twice and it did not work. But guess what? I got married again. <laughs> Third time. Time's a charm. <laughs> I met this wonderful guy in sobriety. He's wonderful. Um, so we get each other. We get each other. And, and I, I love it. What? I think I'm yes. gonna I think I'm gonna get married to someone who's in recovery herself. Because here's yeah. why I say it. When it's you great. are in recovery, they are the most beautiful people in the world. Yes. Even yes, more they beautiful are. than the most gorgeous I, supermodel. Just, there's just, they are there's the just best. something. There's just something. And I, you know, when he asked me, and I swore I would never, and um, I was like, you know what? I this feels right to me. Um you know, he even sent me a text before our, you know, before our meeting, he was going to go out. He goes, I was trying to get back before you did your meeting, uh, before you did your interview. Good luck. And, you know, not people don't understand that if they're normies. <laughs> no, no, I can't get married to a normie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's hard. You know, and, and bless their heart. I, I'm, I'm, I'm jealous of normies. I'm not going to lie. The, no, I, I'm I've not. worked restaurant nah. business for a long time and watch people like open a bottle of wine and like sip it and i'm like well really this is what people do <laughs> but i just can't 
I just can't. And I know that. And I'm so glad that I know that. You know, I, I just, I wouldn't have it any other way. Um, I wish that I didn't spend so much time, um, you know, beating myself up, you know, over the years, but I have no regrets over it because honestly, Neither honestly, I. I hate these. I used to hate these cliches and the little slogans, but you know, like now I'm like a, a quote whore. Like I love them. A what? I can't get enough of them. A okay, what I call whore? myself a, a quote. Oh, I a love quote whore. I just thought, well, wait a moment. I used to hate them. Like, oh, everything happens for a reason. It is what it is. Like, you know, and I'm like, oh, give me a break. <laughs> and I friggin' live by them now because they are so true. And I can yeah. laugh at myself now. And um, I wish that I could tell my younger self, you know, don't, 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 don't get so crazy about things because everything everything that happens to you in your life happens for a reason I, and yeah. i truly believe that today and um just to trust your journey and it's been beautiful the good the bad and the ugly but it's all got me here to this point and i love it well i can't think of a better way to end on that note these are one of the interviews that i think could have gone on for another two or three hours because you're such a natural storyteller and you've been Mighty. Yeah, I guess my dad. <laughs> he loved to tell stories. <laughs> well, it's a rare talent. It's a rare talent. Well, and you've got you. it. I appreciate this. This was this was fun. Like I said, I I get nervous before I have to speak, but I felt like I was Well, you weren't nervous. I felt like you I was talking lead, to darling. This has been a tango to remember. Laurie, well, I thank you. If I say thank you, really, it's an understatement. I say that to everyone, but I truly mean it. It's an understatement. I started this podcast to get an insight into the outsider's view of recovery mm -hmm. beyond borders. I'm proud of you, and I mean it in the fullest sense of the word. There's still a big plan for your life, even at 57 years of age. And may you, keep on, may you keep on fighting the good fight, and I'm with you in spirit. Thank, Thank you so much, you so much Chris. I really appreciate this. You enjoy the rest of your day, and I, I just, I can't wait to see you again. Can't wait to see you. God bless. That was having a cuppa for this week. We hope you enjoyed this leg of the journey. Until the next time we meet, tell your friends and write us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Mm -hmm.